Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Howdy, music nerds, and welcome back to the show. This is episode number 145, and my guest today is an incredible songwriter and singer and banjo player, originally from Montreal, but now living in New York, Kaya Cater. So thanks for tuning in today. It's nice to uh, get a chance to hang with you all. My apologies for skipping a week there last week. So I was in Vancouver for the Folk Festival, and it was really nuts. And I just didn't have time to get the episode out until after I was back and settled back into my real life. It was a pretty stellar weekend, though. I got to play my own music, which was fun, with my band. I got to play guitar for the mighty Joe Henry. Uh, Have you heard his episode from season one? Go have a listen to that. I got to back up a bunch of great artists on a gospel stage, which was really fun. I got to play guitar for Joaquin Cooter, and he played drums for me. And then I organized this big old show where 10 different artists did songs by the Grateful Dead. I had to arrange all the music for that and work with the artists to do the songs the way that they wanted to do them. So that's actually a show I do every year in Vancouver in the fall. It's um, What I do is I somewhat randomly pick an album and we bring in uh, guests and we reinterpret the album with a full band and each guest doing one song. It's a lot of work. It's a ton of fun. We've done it about 10 times now. And last year, we did American Beauty by the Grateful Dead. And it just so happened that this year, the Folk Festival wanted us to redo a scaled-down version of that show for the festival. So I said yes, and that's how that came to be. 
Anyway, we're doing that show again in October in Vancouver, and this year we're going to tackle Highway 61 Revisited by a little-known songwriter named Bob Dylan. Should be a riot. Come and see the show if you're around Vancouver or even Western Canada. All the details for tickets are up now on my website, stevedawson.ca. Otherwise, it's back to work here on a bunch of new records. Some really exciting projects are coming through, and I've got lots of stuff coming up here. I've also been watching this whole SAG-ACTRA strike thing going on where actors and writers are on strike to get fairly compensated, mostly for streaming. And, you know, my hat goes off to them and hope the best for them to negotiate a better deal. It also makes me really sad to think that this is exactly what happened to the music industry about seven or eight years ago. And we basically did nothing except roll over and let the streaming services pay us nothing for our music. It's kind of a sad situation, and everyone's aware of it. We don't need to get into uh, a big thing here and now about it, but it's really interesting to see the difference between the two industries and see how one that has more money and power can pull off these feats of complete cooperation between their members and work on you know, getting paid fairly, where the music community just straight up couldn't find a way to get that done. It's so different and a little disturbing. So anyway, it's a little uh, late to do much about that now, but here's hoping maybe they'll sort something out. So, you know, support your musicians, everybody. We got really screwed. And before we get going here, I would just like to uh, shout out to a couple of people who were generous enough to support the show this week. So many thanks to Jim Pollard and Bill Nork. Thanks, guys. Couldn't do it without you. So on the show this week, we have Kaya Cater. I've always found Kaya's music really fascinating, and she's also been someone that I've seen grow as an artist from when she was super young to where she's at now. She's still super young, as a matter of fact, but she's less super young than she was when I first uh, saw her quite a few years ago. She kind of grew up around folk festivals and events like Folk Alliance and things like that through her mom, who I also know, and basically just from being at and playing at festivals over the last 25 years of my life, I've run into them a fair chunk of times. Her mom was around mostly booking and managing artists, and I know her a bit. And then Kaya started showing up on the scene, I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago or something. And in the last seven or eight years, she's put out some really incredible music. She's a really interesting banjo player and writes primarily on the banjo, but she does on other instruments as well. And she's well-versed in traditional banjo music and string band and old-time music, which she studied in depth that you'll hear about at um, Davis and Elkins College in West Virginia. And also on her dad's side, she has a strong Grenadian connection, which is where he's from. She did some hefty research into his life and the music from that island, and that all comes out in a pretty incredible way on her album from 2018 called Grenades. So go have a listen to that, as well as the one before called Nine Pin. Both are really cool, creative albums. And she also has a brand new album that's stellar. I've heard it, but it's not out yet. And she's not exactly sure when it will be out. So we do talk about it a bit. But as of right now, it's not available. But do keep your eyes out for Kaya's new record coming out either late this year or maybe early next year. She will be out there touring uh, a bunch. And I highly encourage you to go see her. She's great live and has a killer band as well. You can keep track of all that stuff and check out her dates at kayacater.com. So let's get down to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Kaya Cater. 
I wonder if we should maybe start by talking about that. Like, are you are you willing and able to talk about the new record? I know it's not coming out for a while, and this episode will probably come out before your record comes out. So maybe we'll keep that to a, a bit of a minimum. Tell me a bit about, I, I don't know what the record's called. So first of all, can you tell me what it's going to be called when it comes out? Yes, it's going to be called Strange Medicine. Okay. Yeah, in listening to all your work, you've got, this is your, I guess, like your fourth full length record now? That's right. Yeah, fourth. I had to think about it for a second. Um, yeah, yeah, don't we all? <laughs> fourth full length, yeah. Um, so I'm curious about how the process has, has evolved for you, like as far as approaching making records. I know the last record, Grenades, was like had a very specific focus and there was like a sort of a pilgrimage, if you will, involved in kind of tracing your roots through your father's side of the family. Was this a totally different process for you as far as the creation and the writing goes? Um, and the other part of this that I'm curious about, and we can open this, and it may be a bigger can of worms, is for a young artist like you, it's that's a big gap. Like, this is a five-year gap in between mm -hmm. records. And I know you've been doing other stuff, and I know there was a worldwide pandemic in there. <laughs> so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and whether there was more to it than that or whether it was just like a combination of those things? Yeah, sure. Great questions. Um, so to answer the first one, this was a quite a different process from Grenades. Um, just for listeners, I um, I basically went back to my father's home country of Grenada in the Caribbean uh, to write Grenades, which I put out in 2018. And my dad had been a refugee in Canada. And I'd sort of had this like dis distant relationship with uh, the Caribbean. And so it was just a way to, I think, trace my roots a little bit. Um, and I was in my mid twenties and feeling kind of unmoored. So it was a lot of traveling, a lot of researching. Uh, I put out that record with the Smithsonian Folkways. And so I got to go into their archives and look up, Whoa. um, a bunch of like really amazing Grenadian folk music that had been collected like through the fifties and sixties. So it was, it was a lot of kind of like hopping around and putting pieces together. And I flew to Vancouver and interviewed my dad and put some of his voice on the record. So I felt like a little bit more of a sense of movement. Um, and then, of course, when I was writing for Strange Medicine uh, in the, during the pandemic, I was just in one place. Um, and so I had always had this romantic idea of like, the artist goes and they write in a beautiful place and they must not have any distractions and, you know, very kind people make their meals. And, you know, and this was this was a thing where I, I really had to just push myself into a routine and just write every afternoon, even if I didn't feel that inspired. Um, and so it, it felt a little bit more like hammering away at a geode and kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, that there's stuff in there, but you, you got to root through um, a, a lot of uh, the, the kind of monotony of writing, the less romantic side of writing. Totally. Is that something for you that you have to, do you have to like make yourself sit down and write? If you don't do it, you kind of like let that slide or, or what's your, what's your, process for like getting in and actually doing that kind of work well uh, to speak to the second part of the question i mean you said five years is a big gap and you're completely right and i think you know i'm turning 30 in september so and i put out grenades when i was 25 so i think the latter half of my 20s was really kind of like learning how to form writing habits and learning uh -huh. that 
you know, songwriting is a craft that you hone just like anything else. Uh, and I spent a lot of time sort of thinking that the muse would strike and I was kind of an inefficient writer. Um, and I lost a couple of years to that. I think just mm-hmm. not quite figuring out how to have a regular writing practice. And I still can recognize in myself that uh, my, I'm a slow writer. Um, I'm not the type who will come into the studio with 30 songs and narrow them down with the producer. It's like I'm writing as the record is happening. And as the record is happening, I'm getting inspired. Um, so, yeah. That's like, that's a, that's a, for me, that's like a really nerve wracking idea. Yeah. That would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, will you go in? Do you go in to a project with like a couple songs? Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and I really ride that line, right? But I actually, I find so far it's worked out. I don't know if it will keep working out, but I've found that um, that kind of pressure is nice because I think without that pressure, I'm the type to sort of let things go or not not really like, be extra critical of everything and never bring anything to the table. Uh, and mm-hmm. so if it's like, no, you have a record to make, uh, then I have to, I'm forced to bring things to the table that I, that I personally don't think are ready. Um, and you know, and a lot of the times that that's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're a deadline thriver. I'm a deadline thriver for better and for worse. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool though. So what about the grenades record? Like, was that, was that one as well that you actually started working on the recording of before you had all the material? That seems like a really fully formed concept or maybe it wasn't fully formed when you started it i don't know did you set out to make that record it was not fully formed uh when when we okay. went into the studio i i had i think seven songs so i had i felt like i was over the threshold of like a like a good collection of songs that we could look at and say okay who's going to uh, who's going to who are the musicians going to be uh tracking the beds um and it was enough to kind of get people in for a good chunk of time. Um, mm-hmm. But it was definitely, I, I was writing a couple songs as that was happening uh, too. And uh, I don't know. I, it's just, it's something that I, I guess is a habit now. And, you know, I'm pretty happy with a lot of the stuff that I write kind of in the middle of the recording process. It's different. It's work. It's working for you. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> So here's something I'm always really curious about with different artists in your situation is like the writing while you're on the road situation. Do you do any of that? Like, you know, I spent a good couple of years on the road with JT and Ally with Birds of Chicago and they, they're an interesting example of like, they don't do any of that. And, uh, you know, they would go into a album project and they would like write all the songs two days before they went into the studio. Um, and they would just sit down and do it and it would be done. Amazing. And, and yeah. Um, but, you know, while they're on the road, nothing. I'm like that as an artist, too. Like, I don't really when I'm on the road, I find myself just like barely being able to hang on for dear life. So I don't even try. Where what's where do you stand on that situation? Uh, very similar headspace to yours. I feel like uh, at least for me, the last however long I've been touring, probably since full time since 2016. Um, it's really just been, OK, how do I eat well today? How do I sleep well today? <laughs> um, you know, how do I manage my emotions, you know, in a car full of other yep. people managing their emotions? Um, yep. And 
I I will do like a fair amount of journaling. Um, okay. So there's little tidbits coming here. There's and there. little tidbits coming here and there, and I'll if I if I kind of get a flash of inspiration, I'll I had just have a running notes app that'll like put something yeah. into and file it away for later. Uh, but yeah, I'm always I admire people who can write on the road because it feels like a very particular headspace that you need to get into. Um, yeah, I do know people that do it really well, and they're like always just like they're up at seven a.m. an hour before getting on the getting in the van or whatever, <clears throat> and they're writing and they're disciplined and they do it and they're just used to it and it's not like a struggle for that for some of them. Whereas for a lot of people I know too, it's a major struggle. Yeah, I'm definitely like grabbing as much sleep as I can. If if, if I have a choice between an hour of writing and <laughs> yeah. an hour of sleeping, I'll always choose sleeping. Taking the sleep. <laughs> Yeah. The only time for me where I get like a creative spark on the road, I find is in sound checks. Like that's the only time where I actually have time to like mess around and do things that I wouldn't normally do. And that's where ideas come to me. And that's where I end up making little notes and things like that. I don't know if sound checks are ever like that for you at all. That's that's really cool. Uh, yeah. Sound checks, sound checks are, are mostly a space for me where I'll play other people's music. Like I'll just play yeah. covers that I really like. Um, that's and cool. People, you know, the band will just play along, and that's that's really fun. Um, but yeah, I I like that creativity strikes during sound check. For you, yeah, it's great. It does, yeah. So let me ask you some nuts and bolts about about the new record, which yeah, we won't dwell on it too much. But I'll try and wait with this episode to get it as close. I think that I think your album's coming out when December. Is that what I saw? Yeah, but uh, it's it's getting pushed. It's getting pushed into 2024. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm in the middle of uh, okay. that right now. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll push this as, as far as I can. But let's talk a little bit about that. So was the process for actually making this record different? So for, to me, it sounds like on a lot of, of your previous recordings, You've gone in and it's kind of a band situation. What I like, really like about Grenades is like it's a there's a palette of, you know, it's like steel, banjo, vocal, bass, and then minimal drums and that kind of thing. With the new record, it sounds a bit more orchestrated. Like there was more, you know, there's like woodwinds and other textures on there from the stuff that I've heard. And uh, so I wondered if it was more of a, you know, like a studio kind of approach where you were doing a lot more overdubbing or anything, or was it kind of a live tracking um, setup, or how did you approach recording this time? So uh, I worked, I co-produced this album with a friend of mine, Joe Grass, who you probably know. Uh, Joe is, uh, for anyone who's listening, he's an incredible musician, uh, played for a long time with the Barr Brothers, Patrick Watson, uh, just kind of like a man about town in Montreal. And uh, I've known Joe for gosh, like 20 years or something. And I've wanted to work with him for a long time. And the way that he works is he really likes to take his time if he can with recordings. So I was sort of expecting a situation like Grenades where I would write as much as I could. We'd kind of hire a core group, go in, track stuff, and then have beds. And the way that he wanted to approach it was to actually um, get as far as we could with demos. So sketch out mm -hmm. big ideas, you know, for like a couple months beforehand. We ended up hiring orchestrators during the demo phase as well. And so we would send them the demos and then they would put it in their like MIDI orchestrations into it. And we did a lot of like right. approvals based on that so that once we did get into the studio 
a lot of the orchestration stuff was already ironed out. So we knew. And the arrangements obviously were locked in at that point too, I guess. Because, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the arrangements were done by uh, Dominic Mecki and Frankie Russo, who are uh, New Yorkers. And they, they've done a lot of work like on Live From Here with Chris Thiele. So they've worked a okay. lot with folk singers. Um, and so that so, so we did a, like just a massive amount of pre-production. Um, and it, it was kind of during that time that I would write that would be like, okay, here's another song, here's another song. And I was sending Joe songs every week. And then once we got into the studio, it had been about six months. Um, and we decided to track with just me playing banjo and gu- acoustic guitar and a, and a drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the beds was just me and this drummer named Phil Melanson. Uh, and it was just all of us in the studio for about five days um, so just the two of you tracking, like, just, like to a click? Just the two of us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you'd have to, I guess you'd have to do it to a click too, right? Because of the orchestration Yeah, stuff. it was all to a click. Yeah. And like, again, like all the all the BPMs would figure it out beforehand, you know. And actually, uh, we figured out a way to have some of the orchestrations from the demo um, piped in to our cans. So oh, I cool. could kind of hear what was happening with the orchestration and adjust accordingly. Um, and, and Phil on drums could do that too. Um, and so, Does that cramp your style at all? Like, do do you, do you, when you play live, do you like to stretch things out a little bit and like be a little loose with stuff or do you keep things pretty rigid as far as the structure goes? I definitely like people to stretch. I, I really love playing with, um, people with jazz backgrounds in live situations because I think they, they have this comfort with improvisation that I find that I really admire. It's a skill set that I love and Mm -hmm. I learn a lot from. Um, and so live, that's sort of been my approach is to have these, you know, big spaces or uh, kind of like look at someone and they know that they can do their thing and ha- kind of have this like push and pull trust thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think the creativity that came during the recording session was really uh, with Phil because I sort of knew what my parts were. Um, and I think like dynamically I did I definitely changed some things but like Phil was coming in uh he had done he had like done a couple demos for us you know way way back and he you know wouldn't obviously wouldn't remember what he had played and so once he came in it was like he was approaching the songs like in a new space again and so it was basically just like days of like trying stuff. And that's something that that's where the freedom came because I feel like in with grenades, um, there was so much to get through that we really were pretty locked in for time. And so we Mm -hmm. were, you know, everyone had been rehearsed. We had had a day of rehearsals prior to going in. And so I feel like with this album, there was a lot more time to stretch in those ways, but it was just this weird mix of being ridiculously prepared and then also having like (laughs) a ton of space. Do you go into those sessions like fully committed to your parts and your thing and then you're just sort of waiting to see what happens with the other players or in this case, the other player, or are you kind of letting yourself twist and turn as you go as well? I think it depends on the song. I would say... Like musically, I'm I'm much more comfortable on the banjo uh, because I've been playing the banjo for years and years. So with the yeah. banjo, 
with Phil and me and the banjo and, and drums, especially, I feel like I was stretching and I was trying things and that was incredibly fun. I think with the guitar, the acoustic guitar is like, it's newer to me. Um, mm -hmm. And so I do remember feeling like, okay, I really need to play these parts well. Um, right. And I sort of need to practice them. Like I'm just, I just wasn't at that place yet where I could try things as much as I could in, on banjo. Um, so it was, it was a mix. Yeah. 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 Uh, is guitar something you've never recorded before? No, I recorded it on grenades. I recorded some guitar. There's a bit of guitar yeah. in it. Okay. Yeah. I think the song internet, am I right about that? That's like, <clears throat> is that guitar you're playing on that? Yeah. So that's the other thing is any of the finger picked stuff. That's Joe. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. mostly because he's just, he's a guitar player. He's really great at that stuff. And so, um, yeah. I wrote them and I, and I was like, strumming them and he would say oh i wonder what this would sound like if we just finger picked it or if there was another kind of like uh pattern to it um so he was really adamant against playing guitar on this record at all um oh, yeah you know like you had to talk him yeah into there was like he's like he's <laughs> like there's not gonna be any electric guitar and i was like okay great um and so yeah I, any of the finger pick stuff i was like come on joe like just try something. Um, so would he have overdubbed that, or or was he playing that live with you and and the drummer? Uh, he, so like for example, on the internet, it would there yeah. were no drums on the internet, so he just played it in and I sang oh, okay. over it. Um, but let let me see uh, for things like mechanics of the mind, uh, which is one that's kind of like picked. Uh, I actually tracked it in um, strumming with the drummer and then he ended up going in later and like doing the finger picking thing like okay. overdubbing it so there it was like a mix of stuff some stuff was live in the studio and some stuff wasn't and what about your vocals were you tracking those live as well with the drums or was that all done after or how did you approach that that was all done after except one track where we really felt like we weren't getting it uh just with guitar and drums mm -hmm. um and and phil was there and like i said we had time and so uh basically joe played guitar i sang we were in the same room and phil was in another room and that we tracked all of that live off the floor on previous project recording projects for you are you like it sounds to me like on the early on earlier records it's got more of a live feel where you're probably playing and singing at the same time. I don't know if that's what happened or not, but that's kind of how it comes across. Whereas on this one, it sounds like almost like the banjo often is in a different place. You know, like it feels like the banjo's in one plane and your vocals on another plane. And I would guess that they've been, that they were tracked separately in that way. And it sounds like they probably were. Uh, is that something that you were used to doing or did you always kind of go in and like work on the vocal stuff as as overdubs yeah i mean you're right like all of nine pin was recorded live vocals and banjo yep. most of grenades was recorded live uh so yeah this mm -hmm. was the first time that uh i had time and money basically to overdub yeah yep. um and it was a it was i i would say mixed reviews about that i think there were elements of it that I really liked, like being able to focus in on lyrics and really execute them the way that I felt that they should be executed and to have time yeah. to do that. Um, but there's also this other level, I think, of 
of vocal overdubs that I'm sure you know where where the artist can sort of spin into a negative headspace because you oh, have yeah. endless takes and because you yeah. have endless uh, time, sometimes it feels like there's like this kind of happy medium that you hit, which is, I think, this cross section of what you want and what you can do. Um, yeah. And then and then it starts to it starts to crash. Uh, <laughs> and so I have a theory that's based around triangulation where if, yeah, like if you're just doing one thing like singing and it's just, and that's all you're thinking about and that's all you're hearing and that's all you're playing or playing, then that can be a problem. If there's two things that are happening, the same kind of problems arise. As soon as there's a third element in there, whether it's another player or a third player or whatever, there's so much that like gets smoothed out somehow in the process. So it's all for me like three is the magic number where the, where where that starts to go away, and you can like you know it's not like the not necessarily that you're letting things slide. It's just that the microscope kind of goes away at that point, and you kind of like the flow is like a a different process. I don't know. It's a little heady, I guess, but <laughs> that's my theory. No, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, um, they have that theory about about pitch so like if two stringed instruments are playing together they'll compete uh right. for for like pitch if they're slightly off from each other but as soon as you stick a third instrument all the the pitch will totally regulate it's all good yeah yeah that's strange rule of threes yeah. I, yeah i i find the three thing like in particular with time too like it's a you know whereas if you're overdubbing a guitar part and it's a little dodgy time wise you're just going to sit there and try and fix it uh, if it's two things, you're going to do the same. If it's three things, there's enough like compromise about where a beat is. You know, even if you're talking about like bluegrass music or something, where they're they're going fast and furious. But as soon as there's a third element, it's just like all that stuff kind of like gets glued into place. And I don't know, three, three. It's a magic it's number. A magic number. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so where did you make this record? I made it at a, a studio called Mix Art in uh, NDG, Notre Dame de Grasse, uh, which is a neighborhood um, in the south end of Montreal. And uh, I went in for one full week um, and then went back to New York. And then we did some edits and then we came back with uh, the orchestras and we did a like a horns and woodwind session. And okay. and then I like recorded a couple of overdub vocals. So it was two separate little chunks that we did. So back to New York, are, are you living in New York part-time or something? I am. Yeah. Sorry. I I'm living in oh, New okay. York. I did not mention that. Oh, yeah. cool. So what part of New York do you live in? I'm in South Brooklyn in Kensington. Okay. I just pegged you for a Montrealer through and through, but I guess... I'm, I, I missed the mark on that. No, one. you didn't. I mean, I was born in Montreal. When I started writing the record, I was in Montreal. I, I'll, I'll, I'll always cycle back to Montreal. Uh, so why did you move to, to New York? What was that all about? Well, my uh, partner uh, is a bass player. And uh, hence, uh, yeah, there's two basses in this. Hence the basses. Many basses. Um, and he's American. And uh, it was a lot easier for me to get a, an artist visa to move here uh, than it yep. is for him to get an artist visa to move to Canada. Um, and really? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of bizarre. Canada's immigration policies are quite uh, strict. So um, I would have, I would not have thought that. Yeah. I, I, I just, I feel like there's also this thing where 
I think like living in the States is pretty beneficial for my career. So, mm-hmm. you know, of course it was for love, but also for, <laughs> for money. Opportunity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for love and for yeah. money. Uh, and so uh-huh. it like all coincided to, to working out that way. Oh, that's cool. So are you there for an indefinite amount of time at, at this point? Or are you kind of picturing yourself going back to Montreal? Or is this like a semi-permanent thing for now? Uh, I would say it's it's a semi-permanent thing. I I um I bought a house uh, in St. John's, Newfoundland with my mom. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just we're just transcending geography right now. But um. I I basically had this feeling of like okay if I'm going to leave Montreal and I'm going to live in the states I I need to have to keep some sort of connection to Canada because if not I, I'm going to become very un, unhealthy. I feel like there's I mm-hmm. I can't just like leave and never come back. Um and I just wanted to keep roots in Canada and my mom had been telling me that she's planning to move to the East Coast and I really loved St. John's and that's where um a lot of like her side of the family is from um and okay. so we just thought you know why not purchase a house together and and kind of put down roots in a in a concrete way um and so oh, cool. i basically split my time between here and st john's so it's a it's a house that you own with your mom and like you guys are the occupants of it as well you're not like renting it out or anything while you are away yeah exactly like she lives there full time cool. um and she's yeah. she's kind of taken on the lion's share of re- renovations um and yeah. then all like fly in and like stay for a while and renovate too and yeah it's it's kind of so saint St. John's, for people that don't know, is like it's it's a really crazy, cool city in in Newfoundland, and it's also really hard to get to. And I've heard that I've heard that there's a flight from New Jersey or something that goes in every day, and they end up turning around like over half the time because it's so foggy <laughs> they can't land. Is that have you experienced that? Uh, no, but but I will okay. tell you while while we were in the process of of trying to purchase this house, which we we officially purchased it. Um, in April, we'd like been in the process of buying it. Um, but I was trying to fly in <laughs> to sign the papers and do all the things and, you know, the inspections and stuff. And I, my flight was canceled from, from LaGuardia. My flight was canceled because, and this is not a joke. There was a fire at the airport in St. John's and they, yeah. and they just shut it down for a week. They were like, okay, Whoa. you know, it was kind of like a mysterious fire and they wanted to investigate and I totally get it. But there was just no way to get to see John's for, oh for a full week. Um, That's crazy. At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support. And this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. 
Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Henhouse Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think... Go ahead. I, I think the, the American airlines have different guidelines. So what I heard, like... I've I've played on Saint, in St. John's a bunch of times, and what I heard is, like, the Canadian airlines can land with quite a bit of fog, but the American airlines are not allowed to. So they'll they'll get there, and they'll just circle and wait, and if the, fo- the amount of fog doesn't subside in some way to, like, get beyond the level that they're allowed to land in, they have to turn around and go back. Yeah. I believe that. So. I believe that. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's a very... In, it's an incredible place. I, I encourage people to visit, but it really is. It's a rock in the middle of the ocean, you know, and Cape Spear yeah. off off the coast of Newfoundland is the easternmost point in North America. So, you know, it's 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 shorter to fly from Newfoundland to Ireland than it is to fly from Newfoundland to Vancouver. Um, that's yeah. how kind of wild the geography is of Canada. Do you feel like musically, do you have some connect? feelings to the east coast like it's a strong musical thing that's developed there over a long period of time is that something like you said your mom has roots there is that something that you feel like as a musician that you've got to connect to the uh, east coast music world i mean i i love east coast music and and um i think there's a lot of similarities between east coast music and appalachian music just mm-hmm. in terms of um being regions where like a lot of different um uh like groups of people and like everything sort of it's it's sort of like a space where this new kind of music was born from a lot of different um circumstances um like for example Appalachian music as many people talk about including Rhiannon Giddens um uh the banjo comes from West Africa um, and so like this idea of Appalachian music being like a white music is really a myth. Um, and I think there's yep. a lot of that uh, to do with East Coast music as well, especially like Mi'kmaq fiddling traditions. Um, and so I'm really curious of learning more about it. I feel like I never did, mainly because I rarely went to the East Coast. But um, I think as someone who like purchased a property there for me it's like a way to get to know newfoundlanders especially and not to just kind of Mm -hmm. be in and out 
Um, and like just incredible people, like very, very funny people, very witty. I feel like there's a lot of similarities between Newfoundlanders and Irish people. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm just kind of like excited to get to know the area more and, and of course it'd be near the ocean. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And such a, such a strange city as far, like just the way it's laid out and built and everything. It's so unique. Yeah. Love that place. Yeah, it's great. So let's let's talk a little bit about your background. Like, um, so I mean, I've sort of seen you from afar, at, you know, growing up in the folk world, uh, like at Folk Alliance and and festivals and stuff like that around Canada. And I know, like, I know your mom from years and years of just sort of like attending those events and being part of the scene in in Canada when I was growing up there. I don't live in Canada anymore, but that's you know, I I saw her around all the time. Um, tell me a bit about your upbringing and like how you kind of got into this music and, and I guess the banjo as well. Like what was the, what was the thing that drew you to the banjo instead of, I think you started on the piano, right? Yes. And then I played a cello for years. Oh, you did? Mm, Yeah. Um, that's cool. Well, so you kind of nailed it. Like my family's family, my family is kind of a musical family and my granddad built harpsichords uh, and later he built acoustic guitars. Uh, harpsichords? Harpsichords, yeah. Serious? Yeah, serious. Uh, like in Canada? Uh, yeah, in Canada. Yeah. I'll, I can send you Whoa. a link. Yeah. Um, yeah, his name is... What's his... Like, where? What? Back, what? where is he from? He is from uh, Germany. So his parents actually came over to Canada uh, after the war. Um, and his, his okay. mother was a... She was kind of like a classical music enthusiast, and so was his father. And so I think that's like kind of the role of classical music in harpsichords being a facet of that. Uh, And he was going to... Was he a player too, or was he a builder? He was a builder. Yeah, he was going to McGill for architecture. And the the story goes that that, uh, my grandfather, whose name is Wolfgang... Talk about classical music yeah. love. Um, <laughs> he he went to the dean, and this was like the '60s in Montreal, and he just said, like, you know, I don't, I don't want to build homes. Uh, you know, I don't want to kind of be in that side of architecture. I I really want to be a luthier, and um, I'm wondering if it's possible to to just get a specialized degree and just kind of study study this. Um, and the dean, to his credit, was like. Sure. Um, and so that's kind of his divergence as a builder, just kind of focused in on musical instruments. Yeah. And so was he building other stuff, too, or just harpsichords? Uh, I seem to remember that, that he built some viola de gambas, but I would oh. have to double check. Um, yeah. But yeah, his main his main instrument for years was was harpsichords. Um, Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a bizarre thing. (laughs) Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, are they still around? Are they like, are they like cater harpsichords or something? Yeah, I think like a couple, really? a couple of them are still around. Yeah, and I, and I actually have a... All, all of so he had two daughters and I'm in, I'm his only grandchild so he built all of us guitars so we all have like Whoa. wolf wolfy guitars okay. um yeah so yeah Amazing. just kind of like I think just this element of like having instruments in the house and having like this like tactile access as a kid to most mm-hmm. things um it just you know nothing was particularly foreign to me and whenever we would have gatherings family gatherings uh you know everyone would sing like Joni Mitchell songs and Nitty Gritty Dirt Band songs and I don't know it just it was very normal and folk the idea of folk festivals were very normal um Mm -hmm. and so you know as any kid does I I was in the classical stream for years but I also had this kind of parallel life where I would go to these conferences like Folk Alliance and you know, my mom ran the yep. Ottawa Folk Festival and the Winnipeg Folk Festival for years. And and so I was able to kind of be backstage and, and have access to these incredible musicians uh, who were very kind to me, I think, as a precocious, like, 12-year-old. Um, <laughs> and there was this this one musician who uh, who just kind of, in the town that we lived in, he had a spare banjo and he just gave it to me. And uh, we would go to a bluegrass festival called the Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival every year. Mm-hmm. So I started playing three finger and taking lessons, uh, but it just didn't quite resonate. Um, and then I and then <laughs> I befriended Mitch Podolik, who's the founder of the Winnipeg Folk Festival. Rather, he befriended me and he saw that I had a banjo and Mitch's great, great passion in life uh was uh cooking great barbecue and teaching people how to play the banjo sure was (laughs) and so he kind of just caught me at the right age uh and he sat down and gave me a lesson in claw hammer style and and he just kind of like kept following up and kept kept making sure that i knew that there were these opportunities to keep studying the banjo and to uh, go to these old-time camps in the states and uh, he set me up with a teacher in Winnipeg named Daniel Gulak. Um, oh yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, and so I, I think Mitch was sort of like my, like a, a guiding force in my life um, to sort of helping me figure out where my role was with this instrument. And um, and it was only later that I that I ended up seeing the chocolate drops and kind of learning more about the black history of the banjo, which made me as a mixed race person feel like I kind of belonged in this tradition that for so long had felt very um, far from my reality. How far did you get down the like the Scruggs style road before you kind of realized that that wasn't a path that you were super keen on? Not very far, I would say. Okay. Maybe like four or five months. Yeah, and you, and you, it just didn't connect. Like it was just like a, it just felt kind of foreign and weird, compared to how mm-hmm. the the um, 
Clawhammer. Yeah, and Frailing. Is there a difference between Clawhammer and Frailing? No. Or is that the same? They're interchangeable. Okay. You were right. Okay. Um, for me, honestly, I have to say that at the time that I was learning, this was like 2006, seven, um, and earlier, uh, we would go to this bluegrass festival but I think what I recognized was that there were there was like a, there were a lot of Republicans at these blue, bluegrass festivals. Yeah. Uh, there were, uh, you know, it was like majority white people, um, a very uh, kind of like homophobic, transphobic air mm -hmm. in the air. There was the Defensive Marriage Act, which was kind of like circling around that time. And I remember Ricky Skaggs went up on stage with his wife and kind of had this speech about, um, you know, this really horrible, violent Ooh, speech Ricky. about, yeah, about, oh, you know, keeping marriage between God and a man and a woman. So I, even Whoa. as a kid and, and like these were Bush years. And so as a kid going back and forth to America so frequently, um, I think like when I started learning Scruggs style, I was more confronted with the fact that I, in order to keep studying this music, I would probably have, have to, to be hang out with these. People. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Being like pretty hostile situations, pretty uncomfortable situations. And yeah, that doesn't feel very inspiring. No, no, exactly. And I think I, I loved this style, but but just the culture around it was was just too much for me. And yeah. there was something about uh, learning Frailing or Clawhammer um, that was uh, honestly racially just as um, homogenous. But there was, I think, more of a um, this kind of like liberal side that felt at least tolerable and it felt like welcoming to me. Um, were you were you aware of the old time scene that was happening like in Carolina and stuff like that that was probably a lot more friendly to to what you were doing and feeling at that time or was that so foreign that you didn't even know it existed I was not even aware only Mitch uh, truly was my touchstone to any of that mm -hmm. and I think he must have recognized on some level uh, that that would be a better environment for me um, yeah. Yeah, and and of course, like his son, his son Leonard Podolik was part of a group called the Ducks, who had pretty serious success in in the states and in Canada. Yeah. Um, and so I I could observe Leonard from afar, who was in his twenties and touring at the time, and I think like just that combined picture of knowing that family, it it just it made a lot more sense to me than than kind of like learning Scrug style next to a "Don't Tread on Me" flag. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was like, you know, they were they yeah. were like getting high and, you know, playing banjo and, yeah. you know, they, they themselves were Jewish. Laughing their asses off. Yeah, exactly. Laughing their asses off. And there was there was more of this feeling of like kind of acceptance and welcoming. Yeah. What were some of the early, tell me about some of the early recordings that you would have heard that would have turned you on to that kind of stuff. Like... Uh, were you going back and listening to some of the, the early string band stuff? Like, did you go into like the Mississippi Sheik's world at all or anything like that? Or was it specific to a certain region or anything? Yeah, I, I, I actually ended up kind of focusing in on round peak style pretty early because I um, one of my teachers was Riley Boggess um, oh, yeah. and Dirk Powell as well. And so mm -hmm. um, those kind of like North Carolina 
like that kind of like North Carolina. Oh, and then and then of course the Chocolate Drops, whose music I listen to yeah. obsessively. So I think yeah. I was more familiar with a lot of North Carol North Carolinian musicians um, than like Kentucky or West Virginia. Um, and that was kind of like my entry point. And even like the first banjo camp I went to was Swannanoa, which is in Black Mountain, North Carolina, which is just outside of Asheville. Um, and yeah, that was the the main thing. And then later I went to college in West Virginia. And so that was how I ended up oh. um, meeting a, a lot more West Virginian musicians and learning a lot more about like that specific region of of playing, like fiddle playing and banjo playing stuff. How did you end up at West Virginia? Is that that place that has like a really specific string band cl- uh, stream of study there? Is that that? Yeah, well, it's Davis and Elkins okay. College, which is in Elkins, West Virginia. In in the summer, um, it's the home of the Augusta Heritage Center. Um, okay. So basically, it's you know a lot of these camps in Appalachia are held on university campuses um, and they they have different weeks like blues week, old time week, vocal week. Um, and I ended up, I, I would go to a lot of these places on scholarship just saying like, hey, I'm waitressing and I can't afford to pay the $800, you know, fee. But like, I'm really, I'm getting better at banjo. Here's my CD, listen to it. And so I, mm-hmm. I ended up applying to Augusta for a scholarship and um one of the curators there called me and told me that the school, Davis and Elkins College, was looking for uh, full-time music students for their string band program that they were launching. So this was like 2012. I had just graduated high school, didn't know what I was doing with my life. Um, And I ended up kind of on a lark, just driving down with my family, to this college campus and they just explained that they were recruiting young people to form a string band and in order to like tour the string band around the area as kind of like this promotional tool for the college i really truly think it was like this idea that the dean had and everyone else was like, okay, let's try it. You know, he was like, let's go for it. Let's, yeah, let's really put together this like emblem of like West Virginian string band music. Um, and yeah, so I ended up hanging out there for four years and made great friends and improved a did lot. Did you get a degree from there? I did, but, but, um, they, they couldn't get the string band degree program together uh soon enough for me to graduate and so I ended up they just said you know just study something else and so I ended up um studying religion and philosophy but then every week I would take a string band class um and then I would also take a like a percussive dance class so I got credits in that stream but I think because it was such a new idea and it it kind of yeah. didn't have the logistical support behind it. I wasn't able to like yeah. get a degree in string band music, which was the thing that they had originally pitched to me. Um, right, right. Yeah. The horse was a little bit ahead of the cart, maybe. Yes, very much so. Very <laughs> much so. Tell me about what, what the classes were like. Were you learning banjo-specific stuff, or was it more ensemble-based? It was ensemble-based, um, and we would, basically, we would prep set material to tour and we would go on these like little tours regional tours uh with the percussive dance team so 
it was like the Davis and Elkins College, you know, Appalachian String Band, and it would be like music and then percussive dance. Um, And my teacher was Emily Miller, who uh, she's in this band called the Sweetback Sisters, which is like a a country Mm -hmm. swing band. And um, she, I credit her with just like teaching me how to sing because I had never had any formal instruction and Mm-hmm. She was just someone that was, you know, that was like, all right, here are the basics of like country harmony singing, you know, here's the tenor part, here's the baritone part here, you know, yeah. here's how to figure this out. Here's how to figure that out. And it was all very practical, I would say, um, rather than kind of like theory or composition based. Um, it was based around getting you guys out on the road. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, I wow. took a class with her on mic technique, <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> which I had, I had zero mic technique, but like she helps me understand, start to understand what that was like, like what is sound yeah. check? She would run our sound checks. We have, we would have no idea what, really what we were doing, you know, um, and so, yeah, it was. Yeah, sound checks are that you got to learn that shit somehow. Yeah, exactly. So it was like a ton of practical instruction, and and I'm I'm grateful for that now. I think I think what suffered really was like theory, um, you know, like written notation was something that I never really learned until the last couple of years when I started taking composition classes. And so like that stuff, it was a little patchy, but yeah. I will definitely say that like my, my singing, my performance skill set just grew exponentially. Yeah. That's so cool and crazy. So you were there for four years. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Were you taking any private banjo instruction or was it all just based around this class, uh, the performance class? I did take private banjo instruction from a man named Andy Fitzgibbon, uh, who was... Uh-huh who is an incredible banjo player uh does not is not a music professional he's a farmer um and he'll yeah and he'll go around to all the regional banjo content banjo and fiddle contests and he'll just clean up like he'll just play like enter the banjo contest win a thousand bucks enter the fiddle contest win a thousand bucks um he's just an incredibly talented musician um and so i requested to have my lessons with him and he's a very quiet person um and so i i just felt like i was like sitting at the feet of this you know this like quiet old time musician and just trying to absorb whatever he was willing to teach. And he had like all the traditional tunes and styles down. Yes. Yes. Down, okay. down. Like, and and I didn't even, I believe we didn't even scratch the surface of everything that he uh, yeah. knew. I could go back for another year easily and yeah. still be learning from him. How much traditional stuff did you actually get your head around? Like, how deep did you go down that? It sounds like I, I guess the the ensemble you were in was playing pretty much straight up trad stuff, but like, could you do a whole set of traditional music right now if you needed to? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You could. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you know all that. You know all that stuff. Yeah. Because you like, I know you, and most people know you as an original songwriter, and you've used the banjo as a tool to create your own music. But you know, I don't know you as a as a traditional player. So that's interesting. Yeah, actually, it was. I was kind of thinking like after this record it would be really fun to make a, just a record of traditional yeah. music. And, um, yeah. 
I think it was quite intentional for me. I was, I was always like, oh, I, I want to be a song. Like that was my goal since before I had learned the banjo. So the banjo just became a tool on that journey. Um, but yeah, traditional. Were you writing songs at the same time as going when you were going to Elkins? Was that something you were doing? Yeah, as well? writing songs and putting out okay. records. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and yeah, I, I think I just always learned by doing it. I just by just trying to do it, and I was lucky enough to it's have the only way. have enough of a support system that that was possible for me, which is not the mm-hmm. reality for many people. Um, and yeah, so I, I learned like a ton of uh, ballad singing. Like I could I could sing you endless <laughs> like traditional ballads. Um, Wicked. And actually, uh, I take great inspiration from a lot of the imagery in a lot of those old songs. I know what you mean, for yeah. sure. Where would you point people to to me- recorded music that you found really inspirational as far as like traditional uh, string band or um, black banjo players? Or I, I don't know, like wh- what are some unusual things that you've stumbled across that you find have really influenced your path on the banjo and music in general? I would encourage people to check out uh, recordings by the Hammonds family. Uh, they were uh, just a, a group of people with, you know, some were fiddle players. Uh, Maggie Hammonds was an incredible ballad singer. And uh, I think collectively the amount of music that they, the amount of like the the long memories that they had and the stuff that they were pulling out is just brilliant and incredible. And, and I would just play their music over and over and over. Um hmm. And uh, I I don't think you can find them on Spotify. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, they have. Where where do you find that I, stuff? Do you have to get it on seventy eight or something? I think you can. Uh, I think you can order it from uh, the Smithsonian. Um, you can. Okay. I think you can also go on and stream some of it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely. I'll double check. But it it's definitely not something that you can just pull up very easily. Um, but they were a huge influence on me. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I... What about on the banjo specifically? I I would say there weren't a ton of older recordings of the banjo that I was particularly inspired by, mostly because a lot of the time mm-hmm. I was just bothered by how out of tune the banjo sounded. <laughs> and so I was like, I can't get into this tune. It's too pitchy. Um, so... Like, did you ever get into, like, Doc Boggs or Roscoe Holcomb or any of that kind of stuff? Or was that not really your jam? I mean, I did, and I would listen to it, but I don't think I'd... I don't think I'd be like, oh, my God, let me learn this. I, I really got into Snake Chapman. Um, okay. I love, love his tunes. And obviously, Snake Chapman's a... a I don't know him. He's he's great. You got to check him out. Um, really? Yeah. I, he's a fiddle player, but just an incredibly talented, like, detail-oriented fiddle player. And so, I like, lately, I've just been learning all his fiddle tunes on the banjo. Um and and so that's kind of like more the bent that I would take is uh, listening to older fiddle players. Um, yeah. And then obviously I'm a huge fan of um, Adam Hurt um, mm-hmm. and, you know, Sam Amidon. I'm, I'm just really fans of people who kind of have a bit of an oddball approach to playing the instrument. Label-wise, are you still on, uh, did you say folkways or did you say... Uh... 
Uh, yeah, you were on Folkways before. Are you still on Folkways now? Uh, no, I'm kind of shopping the album around, so I'm labelless as of now. Okay, so tell me about this. You mentioned before. I just want to jump back to it. The the Folkways, like the the archive thing that you were able to dig into a little bit, especially the Grenadian uh, traditional side of things. So is that like a building? I don't even know what it is. Is it a building that has a huge archive? That's exactly it. Yeah, it's a building that has a massive it, archive. And it's in D.C.? It's in D.C. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the Smithsonian. Yeah, and honestly, Steve, you could probably get a tour of it if you just email them. What is it exactly? It's a a massive building full of records. Has it been digitized? Is it cataloged? Like, are you just randomly walking the aisles looking at crazy shit? Like, <laughs> no. what, is, what is it actually like? Uh, well, I mean, so so there's a side of the Smithsonian building that it is a record label. So there's like, you know, people kind of like working on uh, yeah. it is like inventory and stuff. Uh, and then there's the arc the archival side uh, and everything has been digitized. So there's a way to look in the system and go, okay, I want to, you know, put in the keywords and then it'll show you like, you can find X thing here and then you can go in and pull it out. Um, I seem to recall that they asked me, like I couldn't take anything out of the room that it was in. Um, I could, I could, record on my phone so i ended up putting putting on these records and then just like turning on voice memos and like recording what i heard and that's what i took home um and and looked over are you allowed to do that or are you actually not supposed to be doing i don't remember i think they probably told me not to do that but now i've said it and i've done it (laughs) but they've been they've been cool about it and there are these like incredible things like there are letters from uh, it's not not only records. It's like there's letters from Lead Belly. Um, Whoa. There's like it's just incredible stuff that you can go and check out. But you need, I think, you need a folklorist to take you through because if you're just walking through the aisles, it's it's just you know it's all temperature controlled and everything's in its place and it's hard to tell what is what what's in what box. So that's why a tour is really cool because they can like pull stuff out and show it to you. Um, it's it's really amazing. Like I recommend the tour to to every musician who goes through DC. So being on the label, they sort of opened that up to you and just said, "Have at it, check it out." Yeah, and I think that lately yeah. they've been on this um, this kind of mission to make those things more accessible, especially to like working musicians. Um, because for so long, Smithsonian was basically kind of like administering the the records and estates of of dead people, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so it it's, it has a bit of a museum feel. But like in the in the last five ish six ish years, they've really just been wanting people to come in and learn, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, especially like working touring musicians. So what kind of crazy Grenadian stuff did you find musically? Like, was there big surprises there or was it like, was it overwhelming or was there kind of a finite collection or what was the general feeling that you got from checking that section out? There's a pretty finite collection. I, okay. I think mostly just because Grenada is such a small island uh, c- compared to the other yeah. Caribbean islands. Um, but there was uh, um, the Emery Cook collection uh, is he he was a an folklorist and he went to Grenada and spent quite a lot of time there and made a whole record um and 
what it sounded like when I was listening to it and making illegal voice memos was that <laughs> he was he basically had put a mic down um, and you could hear like roosters and dogs and like just typical sounds of the Caribbean. And yep. he was it seemed like he was pretty hands off. And so he would he would ask people to come up to the mic if they had a song and then everyone else was standing around because it was like such a cool thing to have an this like sure. white man with a microphone in their town. Yeah. Um, and so they would like sing very generously sing um, and everyone would join in um, on the refrains. And so it was like a lot of songs that people knew there was some uh, like French um kind of stuff happening because before okay. Grenada was a British colony, it was a French colony. So there are some kind of like yeah. French language roots there. Um, and that was cool to hear. Uh, this recording would have been from like the early fifties. What about instrumentally? Was there, was there guitars and fiddles and banjos and stuff or not? Or no, what was going not on? Not really. It was, it was a lot okay. more kind of like vocal choral call and response stuff than I thought there would mm -hmm. be. Um, and actually, I've learned recently that the banjo is far more prominent in in American folk music than it is in Caribbean folk music um, for a multitude of reasons. But uh, in in the States, uh, drums were banned um, from plantations because uh, white slave owners figured out that uh black folks were talking to each other like the talking drum were communicating mm -hmm. with each other through drumming and that was something that uh that like the european slave owners in the states figured out and banned but in the caribbean uh they were never banned so in caribbean like if you think of like so many of the like uh, the musical cultures revolve around like steel pan and drumming mm -hmm. um, ver versus like in the States, it's a lot more like guitar, banjo, anything that's portable stringed instrument, which, which, you know, white people um, having European sensibilities didn't find to be as threatening. Um, so I would say in the Caribbean, like I brought my banjo and a lot of people were like, Oh, cool. Like, this is great, but it's not really cemented as part, part of the, the culture thing. yeah when you were there like creating and writing and just sort of discovering things when you went there were you received positively like were people receptive to that and like thought it was interesting what you were doing or did they just sort of leave you alone and let you do your thing or how did that all go down people were really interested i ended up um sitting in on music class at the local university because word oh, word wow, got cool word got back to this professor that I was in town um, and it's such a small community. Everyone knows each other. Um, yeah. And so it was a really cool thing to just kind of drop into this music class. Uh, and I think with, with Grenadians, and I think this applies to a lot of the Caribbean, so much of the Grenadian population is outside of Grenada is like here mm. in Brooklyn or in Canada or in England that there's yep. this strong sense that that when you come back you're like one of us who's come home and so I I felt a lot more acceptance than I thought I would as someone who felt like just so thoroughly Canadian um 
I felt like this kind of thing of like, oh yeah, you, you, you've just come back and that's great. And like, I know your dad and I know your uncle and I know your grandpa and you know, there's like, it's, it's like they're like, oh, you're, you're this, like you're from this family. Okay, cool. And they, they kind of like know where to place you. Um, and so it just felt very did your, normal. <laughs> did your dad go back ever? Yeah, he, he went back several times. Uh, he had to wait until he um, got his permanent residency status. Um, and I think he got that in like 93, 94. And then he, in, Can- in, in Canada, Canada, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, as he was like applying for refugee status, he couldn't leave the country. Um, so when he finally got it, he would go back all the time. And I went back with him when I was younger, but there was a chunk of time where I didn't go back. Um, yeah. And he actually um, he was gifted some land, uh, so he has always, always, always planned on retiring to Grenada like he will never die here in in Canada I mean um Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's really like and that's what a lot of Grenadians do is you spend your working life um making as much money as you can get your pension and then go back and live the rest of your life in the Caribbean okay Um, interesting so yeah and I'm actually I'm going back in August so I've been going back regularly yeah okay so you do have other family and stuff there too like extended family beyond yeah, I have many, many uncles okay. and aunts. Yeah, um, my grandfather um, was there. He passed away in 2018, um, and my my grandmother too. Yeah, I'm taking her to the doctor when I go <laughs> when I go home. Oh, wow. When I go back okay. to Grenada. So yeah, it's it's yeah. like most of my family is there um, still. Yeah. And so you're putting out this record at some point, December, January, February, March, something like that. And uh, are you going to be touring a bunch? Like, what's your thing with touring? Do you do you love it? Do you hate it? Where are you at? I used to hate it, growing to love it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I w- I'd love to know and what you what your touring opinions are. <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with touring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy, you know, I, I enjoy it. I... When I do it as my own project with my own band, I find it very fun and very stressful at the same time. And, you know, I'm sort of a one-person operation as far as, like, organizing things and stuff. I don't have a big support system. So it's a lot of work. And and then if I go out as a side person to somebody, whether it was, you know, for a few years it was, like, all Birds of Chicago. And then, and then it was with Matt Anderson as well. And so there was a – I was doing a ton of touring, and I probably did too much – at that point, because I was, I mean, Birds of Chicago was like 150 dates a year probably, and Matt was another 50 or 60 that year. That was just before COVID. So, I don't know, I got a little fried on the whole thing. I like it, though, sort of. (laughs) I don't know. For me, like, if I'm at home working in the studio, I can spend eight or ten hours on music and feel great. When I'm on the road, it's like I get to play the gig, and the rest of the day is kind of shot with, like, annoying travel problems totally <laughs> yeah i don't know so that's why i really hate it you know it's like dealing with getting on an airplane is so shitty that it's stressful and it kind of blows your day so i don't know if i can stay home and be in the studio and mix a song i feel kind of more productive you know when did you move to nashville 10 years ago okay what brought you to nashville i just wanted to get out of Vancouver and have a change of scenery. And I thought Nashville seemed like a cool place to go. <laughs> I feel like it was quite prescient of you. I feel like there are more well, and more folks are 
songwriters are moving to Nashville, musicians. Yeah, and- it's crazy here. You know, like it's it's really booming, and it's gotten to the it's gotten way over the point where it's like an affordable, escapee kind of place that you know people were, you know, you were able to when I moved here, you were able to come here and and buy a house for cheap and stuff, and that's just gone completely gone now. So it's not the same at all, but it's still a pretty great place, and it's still a music town with a lot going on. Other than, you know, I'm not involved in the in the new country world at all. I ignore it, and it ignores me. So it's a good <laughs> relationship. But aside from that, there's a ton of great stuff going on, and great musicians, and I've got a little scene of people here that I work with a lot, and it's good. Do you have a a set band that you always tour with? No, I mean. Let's see. I toured with my my partner Andrew. Um, hmm. For we toured as a duo for a long time, um, and that's actually how we got together. Was I, I hired him for a gig, and you know, for some reason that tour was very romantic, and we and we ended up you know whatever. Yeah. So I I feel a lot of the time like my band is very kind of like it sizes up or down depending on the kind of money that I'm offered. So uh, basically when I need to make a little bit more money on the road, I'll just tour solo. Uh, Oh, you do some solo stuff. Yeah. And then when I need, when, you know, when it, when it would be really fun or if it's a a record release uh, year, I'll size up the band. Um, And I just really love playing with um, just kind people. I think I've, I've, I've let go of, you know, uh, musicians who are, um, I think like a little, maybe a little prickly, but great musicians. I think I've learned the hard way that it doesn't matter how great of a musician you are. If you can't kind of get along with people, it it just. The prickly part is what sticks with you. Yeah, it's just a little tough (laughs) to to make that work. So, so. uh, It's all about the hang. Exactly. So I just tour with really kind people that I, that I like to hang with and and whose music I admire. And that's, that's kind of been my goal. And I think with Strange Medicine, I'll probably, like I said, take a little bit more of a jazz approach. So maybe hire like a saxophonist or, um, and then like a drummer and kind of present the the record that way well um i wish you luck with all that stuff and looking forward to when the record comes out and um thanks for talking to me today about all this stuff it's really interesting thanks for having me on steve as tim o'brien says see you down that lonesome road yes indeed (laughs) cool well thank you for taking the time too Uh, it means a lot and it's it's great to just like pat felt like such a relaxed conversation so thanks what we go for here sweet (laughs) Okay, cool. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra in 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. Mom does 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.